This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's a Monday show, a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever is on your heart, you can call us at 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. If you want to email a question, you can email questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car today, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We did. We were really full, um, surprisingly full yesterday. Uh, it was really, really a good day. Um, hope you had a day where the Lord was able to use you to be a blessing to someone else. Uh, very quickly, before I get to the questions, uh, please, uh, if you uh, are interested tonight, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel at 7 o'clock. Uh, ladies, you can watch online uh, at... Uh, uh, CalvarySA.com. Uh, Jocelyn Makasadia will be teaching tonight, uh, and um, I, I know what she's teaching on, but but it will be great. Um, there's a question and answer that always follows, and you will be blessed. So all of that's going on here. Let me get to some questions. I've been thrilled today. Um, I got a series of questions from my dear little friend, my genius friend Nathan. Now, Nathan is six years old, and I've talked about him on this program before. He's actually called, I think, on the program before. Uh, But he's got wonderful questions. He likes when I test him. He has a memory like a steel trap, and I just really enjoy. Evidently, his mom and dad got him a Bible maps book. And boy, did he have some questions. So I'm going to go through them uh, as he gave them to me. The first one is... How do they know that Mount Ararat is in Turkey? Uh, Nathan, the answer to that question is that they they don't know for sure. There is a Mount Ararat currently uh, in Turkey. Um, uh, it's a site that you can go see. In fact, it's a site where um, there have been reported spottings of, of what could be something the size of an ark. Um, and, and so you could go visit it in the nation of Turkey now. Now, we need to remember that the boundary lines, national boundary lines are different now than then. 
and the whole topography of the earth was changed in Noah's flood. So um, right now we, we, we think that uh, Mount Ararat uh, is the resting place. However, there are two other places that claim to be the resting place of Noah's Ark, and they claim to have found some, some items that would, would seem to suggest that they're there. Now, a couple of things that you have to remember about Noah's Ark. And, and this is just your pastor, Nathan, who is who is telling you this. It is my opinion that Noah's Ark will never be found. Uh, just like God had to bury Moses' body, um, uh, this is an ark that will never be found. Um, if you date um, the, the, the flood of Noah uh, to, oh, I'm going to say about 2500 B.C., um, that's a long time, over 4500 years um, that the, the, the wood of the ark would have been um, would, would have been decaying. Um, the other thing is, as Noah came off the ark and his family, um, the wood of the ark would have been very valuable to them. So it's likely that Noah and his sons would have disassembled the ark. So I don't think it will ever be found. God knows men's um, propensity to to worship things like that. They found. Um, we don't need to know that uh, Noah's Ark, finding Noah's Ark doesn't prove the validity of the story at all. We know that it's true. So uh, that's all we know about that. The second question was, where did the Queen of Sheba come from? And uh, Queen, the Queen of Sheba, Nathan, came, um, um, we think, from Ethiopia. Uh, he asked, where did she come from, Africa or Asia? Um, we think uh, that she was from, at least legend is that she came from Ethiopia. Uh, Yemen, on the other side of that little port, uh, is is in what was the, in the ancient world, Asia, and it's very possible that she could have come from there. But we don't know. And Nathan, here's one of the things, and I love that you're so curious um, but there are some things that we've got to just say, okay, God didn't let us know all of the details. And because we don't know all the details, uh, sometimes uh, it's good just to file those things away and we'll get our answers when we get to heaven. But but nobody really knows for sure. What's important about the Queen of Sheba is that she traveled all the way to see King Solomon, to see if even Half of the wisdom she heard about was true, and what she found out was that uh, it was way more than what she heard about Solomon that was true. So that's the story of the Queen of Sheba. The other question is, um, where uh, did the 12 tribes get their land from? And he was pointing to, in a little video we got, to uh, to a land of the, the, the maps of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Nathan, it's not exciting reading, but you can read in the book of Joshua uh, from chapters 12 through 21, and it gives you a very detailed um, parsing out of the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. Some of them got their land quickly. Others waited. Others didn't have the faith to occupy their land. Some weren't satisfied with their land. They were people just like we are. But um, the, the, the land that was given to them by lot, it was drawn by lot. Um, that land, you can read about that in Joshua chapters 12 through 
21. Again, it is an exciting reading. I love the book of Joshua, but boy, when you get there to teach that, Nathan, it is really, really difficult. So I hope that helps, Nathan. Thank you, and God bless your mom and dad for stoking your excitement about the Word of God. I'm proud of you. Here is a question from Debbie. Debbie says, Pastor, on Luke 8, 26 through 34 is the prelude to what was happening. My question is, why would the people be so afraid that they would ask Jesus to leave? I mean, this was a man possessed by many demons, for heaven's sake. And, of course, she's referring to the story of legion in the Decapolis or in the Ten Cities, which were primarily Gentile in its cultural makeup. So, Debbie, they didn't ask Jesus to leave because they were afraid. Now, they were terrified. It, just the fear of God. You know, if, if, if this man, Legion, who had been chained up and, and chains couldn't hold him, uh, if he was, the uh, Bible says he was naked and, and terrorizing people, I mean, he would have been somebody that everybody in the area was, was fearful of. And then Jesus just comes in instantly. The next time they see Legion, he's dressed and he's in his right mind. And they would think, wow, who could do this? It's sort of like when Jesus was with his disciples and he told the wind and the waves to be still. And instantly they were. Water doesn't stop moving instantly, but it did for Jesus. And that fear of God, what kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, that's the kind of fear of God. These were Gentiles, they were people that that were involved in horrible sin. They wanted nothing to do with God, and yet they saw the demonstration of the power of God as the demons were cast out of legion. Now, the reason they asked Jesus to leave was more mercenary than that. When those 2,000 pigs, and there were at least 2,000 demons, when those 2,000 pigs rushed off, I call it pig suicide, off the cliff and killed themselves. That was the economy of the Decapolis going down the drain. And they were angry with Jesus. You know, don't mess with my money is basically what they're saying. So you go. We, we don't want you here. And even though Jesus solved one problem with Legion, and by the way, there was another man who was demon-possessed as well. Um, uh, Jesus solved that problem for them. Um, he, they, they weren't going to let him mess with their economy. And, and basically, uh, when those pigs died, so did their pocketbooks go down the drain as well. So, Debbie, that's the reason that they would beg Jesus to leave. They, they would literally force him. And, of course, when you ask Jesus to leave, then he's going to leave. So thank, thank you, Debbie, for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is the next question from. This is from somebody in our foundations class that was sent in to me today. Uh, interesting to speculate. Um, Pastor, did Lucifer expect the consequences of his turning from God, or was he surprised? Well, it's impossible to know for sure. Um, Lucifer is bright. Uh, God's greatest, most beautiful, most powerful creation, power on an equivalency with Michael the Archangel. Um, but you know what I say all the time? If you've been coming to church here any length of time, you've heard me say sin is insane. 
I don't think sin thinks ahead. Now, we know that from our own lives. We do things. We know if we stop just for a minute and, 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 and really considered what might happen for the choices we make, we wouldn't make a lot of those choices. But sin doesn't think ahead. And so I think um, Lucifer rebelled. It was an impetuous move. Uh, I don't think because once he rebelled against God, he was done. He hasn't had any remorse for it whatsoever. Uh, and I also think because he was so close to God, I don't believe he was surprised. Um, not pleased with the consequences, but I don't think he was surprised. I don't, Again, I don't think sin uh, considers the consequences of our actions. That's why we keep doing the same dumb things and keep getting in so much trouble. So I hope that answers your question. By the way, the foundations class that... Um, that question came from every Sunday at five o'clock. Uh, our foundations class is led by Louis Henner and his wife Annette comes and, and there's a good group of people that come and, and Louis teaches them on sort of the basics of our Christian faith. And he does it in topicals. Now it's not a, a lecture like me teaching a Bible study. Uh, Louis teaches, but then there's a lot of, it's a smaller group. So there's a lot of uh, back and forth and questions and answers. And it's a really, really healthy group. And if anybody is interested in getting a, a little bit stronger foundation uh, in your uh, walk with the Lord, uh, Sunday nights at 5 o'clock here uh, at the church, it's a wonderful time for you to, to do that. 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question. My current girlfriend, and in parentheses he writes, we're getting serious, is not as committed to her faith as I am. She's unwilling to abstain from sex until we are married. What should I do? Anonymous, you should absolutely say goodbye to this relationship. Don't go one step farther. Uh, You are in an unequally yoked relationship. Um, When you say not as committed to her faith as a pastor, I read that as an unbeliever. You're either a believer in Jesus Christ, which means that we embrace him. It's not just embracing his teachings. We embrace him. And if you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit of God comes in you, the Holy Spirit, and you know the difference between right and wrong. And when you do wrong, you know that you're rebelling against God. And so your current girlfriend seems to be somebody who is an unbeliever, and you're in an unequally yoked relationship, and there's going to be nothing but pain. So what I would say to her, and this is a great witnessing tool, I mean, if you love the girl and you want her in heaven, just say, you know what? I love you, but I love Jesus more. And if you're unwilling to abstain from sex, then I'm not the guy because I'm going to honor Jesus Christ with everything that I do. I love you, I'll pray for you, but we can't be together until you love Jesus as much as I do. And tell her goodbye. You know, Anonymous, yesterday I did a teaching on that, that included some of this, talking about uh, being single in the 21st century world uh, here from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we are in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so I would, I would uh, ask you and your girlfriend to sit down and listen to that together. But the, the, the thing that you've got to deal with is, do you love Jesus more than you love this girl? 
And the truth is, if she's not committed to her faith now, if she's also trying to drag you into sin, causing you to compromise, or even worse, to deny your faith altogether, this is a relationship that doesn't have a chance. And if you give in to it, if you pursue her rather than Jesus, you're going to regret it, probably for the rest of your life. I don't mean to be melodramatic here, but I I said uh, in my study yesterday that uh, the most pain we as pastors deal with uh, here as it relates to family counseling or marriage counseling is the pain when believers are married to unbelievers. It is a miserable existence, and uh, there isn't anything else uh, that I could say. Here is another anonymous question. Now, I don't like the mean spirit behind questions like this. Um, It's directed directly to me. You stopped requiring masks to be worn. Are you a pandemic denier? Um, If you've listened to me enough to know that I've stopped requiring masks be worn, we've made masking optional. Every adult gets a free will choice. I'm sort of like Jesus in that sense. I think adults ought to be able to make their own choices. It became legal to go back to 100% of capacity in businesses, and we're classified, though it's a religious business, we're classified as a business. Masks are no longer mandatory. Um, We still have a lot of people that wear masks, uh, more that do not. Uh, But but, uh, to ask if I am a pandemic denier seems to me a pretty hateful question. You know better than that. Uh, I am a man who had COVID-19, got over it. Um, We haven't had a reported outbreak of COVID since, gosh, I'm guessing July or August. We had a bunch of people at our church get it at the same time, including me and Paula. Um, But we haven't had a single outbreak since then. And... um, I got an email from my principal today. Uh, We're 201 days COVID-free since we started school um, this year, in-person school, uh, at the beginning of the school year. Uh, And I just think um, people should make their own choice about whether or not they want to wear a mask. So um, I don't know what the motive behind your mean-spirited question was, but uh, no, you would be foolish to be a pandemic denier. Uh, what I've said from the very beginning is that we can't let fear of COVID-19 change our lives. We're Christians. We serve God every day. So I hope that was a kind response to your unkind question. Riley asked this question. Jesus became a man so he could be like us. Was he like us in every way? Well, Riley, he was like us in every way, uh, with one exception. And that exception is that Jesus did not have the sin nature that we're all born with. Jesus was um, a human. He had to be a human to die for the sins of other humans. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. Uh, Jesus got angry. Jesus found... um, Opportunities to laugh and opportunities to cry. Jesus understands 
our pain. So yes, he was like us in every way, except this one way Jesus couldn't have sinned. Sin was not attractive to him. When we're tempted, whether it's our flesh tempting us, the world tempting us, or the devil tempting us, we're tempted by stuff that our flesh likes. Well, Jesus had no sinful flesh. So, for example, if he was ever tempted by a woman, he would simply have been sort of repulsed at the idea, not of the sexuality, but repulsed at the idea that he would break his father's heart. He just, sin didn't, it, it's like if, if I offered you the a food and it was the worst food ever, you hated it. Okay, I'll give you an example. For me, it's bell peppers. If somebody offers me a bell pepper, they're, they're, they're tempting me with it, but I'm not tempted by it because I hate bell peppers. So, um, Jesus was like us in every single way. There was one way that we're unlike Jesus. Now, he was like us. But Jesus had only love at the heart of everything that he did. Love for his father. Because his father loved you, Riley, and his father loved me. Um, Jesus loved us and sacrificed his life for us. So yes, he became a man like us. Uh, But there was one remarkable difference. Jesus never once sinned. And Riley, you and I, well, we can't say that. Thank you for the question. Um, Here's an easy question. I haven't heard of this name in a long time. Joseph asked me, um, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on Kenneth Hagin's teachings? Um, Kenneth Hagin, of course, is dead now. He was a big prosperity teacher, health teacher, who claimed to heal people, and a horrible, horrible, horrible false teacher. Um, but Kenneth Hagin, uh, he died. So, according to his own theology, he must not have had adequate faith. Of course, we know that's not true, but Kenneth Hagin um, was a false teacher, and there isn't a single thing that he said or wrote that is worth Five seconds of your time, Joseph. You know, when I first got saved, um, uh, a, a friend of mine um, bought me a, a King James study Bible. Um, leather, it was my very first Bible. I loved that Bible so much, so much. And it was a Kenneth Hagin study Bible. And one of the studies in the back was 23 reasons why every Christian should speak in tongues. And I think, I'm pretty sure, Joseph, I still have that Bible. Um, uh, but but I stopped taking it anywhere with me when I realized that it, who Kenneth Hagin was and how bad his teachings were. He was just a classic uh, prosperity teacher, um, caused so much pain. Uh, he was so hard-hearted, uh, having been confronted repeatedly about his false teachings, that that that's a man that I would honestly question if he knew anything at all about Jesus or if he knew Jesus at all. But Joseph, he's certainly not somebody that you want to spend any time um, listening to uh, via YouTube or however you can find him. Um, and, and certainly you don't want to read anything by him. Just don't take the time. There's There just isn't anything at all of value. Richie asks, uh, please tell me exactly what progressive Christianity is. Um, Richie, it's really not Christianity at all. Uh, I just recently did a pastor's discipleship class on this because we need to understand 
we need to understand that that um, that the world that we live in and 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 the world is being taken over Christian world the so-called Christian world is being taken over by progressive Christians and basically they deny the word of God um, they they don't take it literally um, they they certainly don't believe that Jesus is the only way they are uh, fully embracing. Um, homosexual lifestyle, including gay marriage, transgenderism. Um, basically, it's just a very far left wing, liberal theologically um, rewrapped version of liberal theology from the 60s and 70s that that sort of has taken over our universities, even those that are so-called Christian universities. But but Richie, make no mistake, progressive Christianity is not Christianity at all. And those who are progressive Christians, or they call themselves progressive Christian, progressive Christians, uh, they don't know Jesus at all. They have no clue who he is, and um, no interest in doing what he tells us to do. So uh, that's what progressive Christianity is, and it is, I believe, the beginning of the great falling away, the apostasy that will precede the rapture of the church. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585. This is the Word Standing for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program again. Our phones are starting off quiet. We love your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We just got this in from Hugh from our email inbox. He said, I sent you a question last week about how wisdom is used in a feminine form in Psalms and Proverbs. This is a follow-up to my point. God is spoken of in the masculine as our angels. The number of Israelites in the Exodus account, the 12 tribes, and all the lineages are based on males. Very quickly, before I keep reading, there are females there. And they're very important and strategically placed in there. Uh, Rahab is there. Tamar is there. So uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, is there. So it's not exclusively male in the lineages. Um, and then we'll continue, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get to this. It says, Mary's offspring are all mentioned, but only the male names are given. And this trend goes on and on, especially as one really starts to learn the Bible as I have. It just struck me one day, though, as I was reading through Psalms and maybe Proverbs, that wisdom was described in a feminine form. I understand, agree with your answer last week. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Okay, no new question. Just, um, yeah, wisdom, uh, there are some things that are mentioned in a feminine form, but uh, certainly not God and certainly not the angels. Um, uh, We have to remember that, that the ancient world was patriarchal in its makeup. 
uh, until Jesus, uh, women had no standing whatsoever. Um, in the in the in the world that they lived in, um, they were completely dependent upon man to care for them. They had no rights, and if they were kicked aside, they were kicked aside. Jesus, you changed all of that. And you know, I think I had a question uh, Thursday or Friday last week about um, uh, feminism being compatible or incompatible with the Bible. Um, Jesus is the greatest feminist in the history of the world. The greatest feminist in the history of the world. He alone set women on equal standing. And, and of course, he's speaking to the women that belong to him. And, um, yeah, wisdom is spoken of in the feminine uh, form in uh, Hebrew and in Greek when, when, when wisdom is mentioned. Um, but in this particular case, um, we just remember the differences in the world that we lived in there. One of the things, and I'm really struggling with this, um, you, you know, on, on, I, I got a new iPad, uh, a wonderful young man. Uh, I haven't seen him since he gave it to me, but a wonderful young man did some really nice, got me a, a, a new iPad, which was bigger than the, the mini that I was using. And he did it. He, he's he's like me. He's visually impaired, and so I have a bigger one. Um, but but see, on my iPads, I can't get the, the 1984 version of the NIV, and I'm trying to. Str- I'm really struggling with uh, the inclusion of uh, words um, when 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 Paul says brethren or brothers. I urge you. Um, the, the the newer versions of the Bible will say brothers and sisters. And and while as a pastor, teacher, I can say that, I can say, but this applies to you as well, ladies. It ceases then to be a translation. And I've been really struggling with that. So you need to understand in the poetry books uh, like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job are, um, Song of Solomon as well. We We simply need to understand it's a literary device. And that's all it is. You know, I'm glad you're reading your Bible and really getting to know it. Thank you very much for your follow-up. Um, here is some questions that have been called in uh, to the studio uh, anonymously. Uh, is there going to be judgment against the nations in the end times? Will there be judgment on America or just individuals? You know, um, caller, this is... Um, uh, the judgment of the between the sheep and the goats. I think it's Matthew twenty six, um, where, where you'll find it. But yeah, there will be a judgment of nations. Now it's not going to be like we think in the sense of America. The judgment of nations is going to be based on uh, how the nations in the world treated God's people, Israel, the the nation of Israel. So um, yes, there will be a judgment of the nations, the separating of the sheep and the goats in the end times. Now, the judgment, the real judgment that we all have to worry about individually is we've got to worry about uh, when we every knee will bow and every tongue confess before Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 makes it clear that nobody escapes that. So there will be judgment um, as as it relates to our care for Israel um, the United States of America will stack up um, much better 
than other nations in the world, of course. We have been Israel's biggest ally. Uh, I think we are quickly deserting Israel, uh, especially during the Obama administration. Um, um, President Trump uh, was a big supporter of Israel, allowed them to move the capital back to Jerusalem where it should have been. Um, even still, Trump was uh, not a big supporter of Israel in the sense that he was still trying to bully them into uh, negotiating away their land in, in the name of a so-called peace. Um, now, of course, with our new administration, they are as anti-Israel uh, as the Obama administration was. And so um, um, I think we're we're saving up some judgment. Now, what form that judgment is going to take, maybe it's going to be greater difficulty uh, during Great Tribulation, we don't know. But the judgment of individuals is the, the ultimate judgment that will determine our place in heaven or hell. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I said Matthew 26. It's Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. So thanks to my producer for getting that out for me. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is our next question uh, from Aaron. What is the meaning of the pearl of great price? Aaron, one of my favorite parables. Um, it's just a verse. It, it's a companion verse to the field hidden in a treasure, or the treasure rather hidden in the field. I got it backwards. Um, the, the meaning of the pearl of great price is simple. Now, one of the things you have to remember about uh, pearls in the ancient world, for Gentile kings, and that makes this a significant parable, for Gentile kings, pearls were like, they had great, great value. They were treasured. Uh, Jews detested them because they were unclean. But But for Gentile kings, they would send merchants all over the world looking for pearls, and they would want bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger pearls, so their king would have this huge pearl hanging around his neck, and, and that would set them out as as, as powerful and rich. And uh, and so the, the pearls were, they had great value. And the bigger the pearl, of course, the greater the value. Well, Jesus used that, um, saying, okay, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a merchant, a king who sends a merchant out to find a pearl of great price. When he finds one, and that's very important in the parable of the pearl, when he finds one, he sells everything he has, he buys it, and then brings it back. Well, in the parable, Aaron, Jesus is the merchant. He's the king who is 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 places great value on these pearls that were only valuable to, to Gentiles. God the Father sent his Son. I always say he emptied the bank of heaven to buy us. So Aaron, we're the pearl. We're the pearl. You're the pearl. When he found one, Aaron, what it means is if you were the only one who would have ever believed, God the Father still would have given his only Son just to buy you, to purchase us from our sin. And I love, um, you know, this and the treasure hidden in the field. Well, Jesus is the treasure and we found it, or Jesus is the pearl. That is a complete misunderstanding of both parables. Um, 
We're the pearl of great price. We're the thing of inexpressible value. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that whosoever, even if there was only one whosoever, would believe um, and have everlasting life. So that's what the meaning of the pearl of great price is. It is a treasure, a little tiny one-verse treasure in our Bibles. Chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 45. Adam says, Is it wrong to pray for someone to be saved after they die? Yeah, Adam, it really is. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed that a man wants to die and then face the judgment. And... um, uh, that's the only opportunity we get. So um, it is wrong to pray for someone uh, to be saved after they die. The, 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 the lot is cast. Their place in eternity is healed. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church over the centuries has perpetuated the idea that, that when people die, they go to purgatory and they can be prayed out of purgatory and the church can actually release them. Um, uh, it's, it's one of the ways the church... Um, collected what now would be billions and billions of dollars in the ancient world. Um, you can imagine how comforting it would be to know that, well, if you give the church a gift, um, that they can they can release your loved one uh, from purgatory. Instead of going to hell, they'd be in heaven. Uh, but it is wrong. Um, you know, I, I realize, Adam, that um, when I answer a question like this, that the person asking the question is often thinking about people that that they love, people in their family. Um, now that they, now that they um, have been saved and they realize that they're going to heaven, um, we we all of us we have to deal with that. Well, wait a minute. What about my mom or my dad or my brother or sister or my husband or my wife or my kids even? Um. And, and and we're always looking for a way to sort of make ourselves feel better, which is really pretty selfish if you think about it, um, by assuming that we're going to be able to get them out of hell and get them into heaven. Um, that's not only bad theology, but it is an insult to a righteous God. I'm going to take a minute here and answer this because I often um, get questions from people about well, well, why would God send good people to hell, or, or um, you know, why do you want Jesus to come? Because if He comes, then the world's going to be plunged into judgment. People that we love and people that we care about are going to be plunged into judgment. And Adam, the truth is that people who have that perspective, they don't really understand who God is. If we were to get to heaven and find out that everybody made it, then we would have a God who wasn't just, a God who isn't righteous. Now, obviously, that, that could never happen, but but just this heaven that we make up in our mind, this, this loving, forgiving, overlooking God that we create in our own mind and heart, um, he wouldn't be God. And if everybody gets to heaven, then there's no justice in this world. You know, we don't think about it because we're thinking about my mom or my grandma. Um, but, but if everybody gets heaven, it means Hitler is there. 
It means that Caesar Nero is there, who used Christians as torches to light his courtyard, soaked them in tar, and lit them on fire so they'd have light. You think about the the, the Roman emperors, some of the most evil men ever, Caligula and others, who fed Christians to the lions. If everybody gets to heaven, that means everybody. It means that people who rape children would be in heaven. And our Bible tells us there'll be nothing evil, nothing dark, nothing impure in heaven. And what we've got to learn to do is trust the righteousness, the justice, the fairness, and the goodness of God. And honestly, the way I've learned to deal with this over the years is just I know that everybody that I love, everybody that I'm praying for, I know that God has done everything he could short of forcing them to become Christians. He's done everything he could to to kind of pull them across that line of faith. And they refused. And as horrible as it is to think about, there are consequences to decisions in this world, and especially that decision, what are you going to do with Jesus? And basically, we're throwing away our Bible when we think that, well, I hope everybody gets to heaven, or I hope Jesus doesn't come back soon. Um, Believe me, that moment we look at him, the moment we look at him, if the rapture had happened before this program went off the air, if that moment happens and we see that face, all those questions will go away. And we will no longer have any memory of anything that could bring us sadness. Our life will be what it was always intended to be when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Nothing but beauty. Nothing but good. Well, mankind ruined it. Jesus will restore it. But he's only going to restore it with believers. That is why, Adam, that we need to be about God's business and telling people who don't believe now about Jesus. That's why we can so confidently tell people that God loves them and he'll forgive their sins if only they'll ask. But the decision has to be theirs. It can't be ours. 340-9585, Joel. I always say Joel now. Sometimes it's just Joel. Uh, he wants to know, are Eastern Orthodox believers really saved? Um, Joel, some of them are. My guess would be most of them are not. Um, they're serious doctrinal errors, aberrant doctrine. Um I think the answer would be the same uh, as I get asked often about Catholics. Uh, in every group, Jesus has a remnant. Um, in every uh, group, there's always people that really believe what they need to believe. Um, um, Eastern Orthodox is a tradition, um, the oldest Christian tradition um, on earth. Um, and yet... Um, they deny things like penal substitutionary atonement. 
Think about that for a moment. They denied penal substitutionary atonement. Eastern Orthodox uh, believers uh, use icons and, and are involved in idol worship. While they would call it veneration, it's, it's literally idol worship. Um, just, there's so many problems doctrinally that the number of Eastern Orthodox believers who are truly saved is a really small number relative to the whole. Now, let me make one statement that I hope doesn't sound too contradictory. I want it to make sense. But I'll give you an example. You remember uh, some years ago when the Coptic Christians uh, were beheaded by ISIS? Uh, the whole world saw it. Um, um, Coptic Christians are very similar to Eastern Orthodox believers. They've got all kinds of of these were Egyptians, I believe, but they were um, the very similar aberrant beliefs. But but every one of those um, Coptic Christians that could have saved their life by denying Jesus Christ, when they refused to do so, demonstrated who they really belong to. So a lot of it's cultural. A lot of it's where you've grown up. There's, there are some places uh, where the expression of Christianity is Catholic. And even though the doctrine is wrong, uh, that's the Christian representation. Uh, the Philippines is a good example. Mexico City is a good example. Um, uh, are they wrong about a lot of things doctrinally? Yeah, but, but if they're born again, whether they're Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, or Roman Catholic, um, to be saved, you have to be born again. That's the standard, and Jesus is the one who set that standard himself. Good question, Joel. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Uh, Stephen says, uh, Pastor Ron, how do we speak to those genuinely struggling with gender confusion in love? Um, Stephen, I think I think the best way to speak to anybody in love is to do so directly. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of value, and I get a lot of flack for this, by the way. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of value in in entering conversation. Well, you know, why don't you just listen to us and, and see how we feel? I think the most loving thing I can do to somebody who is, is genuinely struggling with gender confusion is to straighten them out. And I don't mean that in a harsh way, but simply say, look, the, the confusion you're experiencing is demonic. So here's what you do. You believe what the Bible says. God made them male and female. Which one are you? Look at your body physically. That's who you are. And then decide to embrace that. And if you tell people that in love... How they receive it is really irrelevant. It is not unloving to tell the truth and to do so directly, Stephen. So I just think we, we don't want to get in anybody's face and we don't want to be um, um, arrogant and, and, and a nuisance. But when you're ministering to somebody who is really struggling with gender confusion, ask them what the source of that is. Because the Bible says God made us in his image and you're denying that God made you in his image if he made you a male and you want to be a female or vice versa. And we need to tell people lovingly but directly that what we feel like doesn't change who we are. And in order to please God, we've got to accept him 
on his terms. And the only way we can do that, and I just, I completely reject, Stephen, this idea that, that being direct with somebody is unloving when I think it is the most loving thing that anyone can do. Think about it this way for a moment. If um, you were very patient with somebody and you just listened to their feelings and, and you said, you know, well, I, I don't want you to be unhappy and all those things. And, and then let's say that, that they were pushed over the edge and they had reassignment surgery. And you didn't do anything from a Christian perspective, witnessing for Christ. You didn't do anything to prevent that. How would you feel about that? So I think that's how we speak to people. We speak to them by telling them the truth, by telling them the truth in love, and by reminding them, not a turn or burn type of way, but we remind them that heaven or hell is the choice that they have to make. I've asked gender-confused people what the source of it was. It's always feelings. There's never any fact. And if you will love them, you need to tell them the truth. You need to tell them facts. Not their truth, just the truth. Hope that answers your question, Stephen. Pray for them as well, obviously. I've got two minutes. Um, Bruce says, What is the biblical way to grieve someone who was saved when they die? You know, uh, Bruce, there's only one way to grieve. You grieve with sadness of heart. Um, you grieve. There's there's no biblical way. Grief is grief. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. When we love somebody and they die and we know they're separated from God forever, it's supposed to hurt. We hurt when people we know are going to heaven die. The pain, the grief is real. It's all that much greater when we know that they're not going to go to heaven. And so I just think the only way to grieve is grieve. Everybody does it differently. It's not the same for anyone. Um, but, but I think the way that we could honor the Lord and their spirit, Luke 16 says your friend would be in heaven saying, well, go tell people. That, that's what I would do. I'd tell the people that they cared about that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So, Bruce, that's, uh, if I understood your question right, that's the right way. There's no set way to grieve. We just grieve. It hurts. And it hurts a great, great deal. Hey, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate the questions. Uh, hopefully tomorrow we can get some more phone calls. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember tonight, uh, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.